<laughs> There's a lot going on right here. <laughs> you guys are great. That's beautiful. You guys are great. I love you all, and I'm so thankful I get to be here. You know, tonight we have a message that is incredibly hard for us to accept. And here's what's wild about that. We're going to talk tonight about uh, the problem of humanity. If you, know, if you were to ask people, what's the problem of humanity? You'd get lots of different answers. And the solution will completely depend on what you think the problem is, right? That, that's what it depends on. And there are a lot of people who don't want to acknowledge the darkness in the human heart. There are a lot of people who want to have a simplistic, well, there's no good and evil, people are all basically good. You know, all we need is a little more time, a little more education, a little better parenting, a little more uh, government doing its job, and we'll solve all the world's problems. And then you have advances in human history, like the Industrial Revolution or the Scientific Revolution or the Renaissance, and human beings have this incredible capacity to paint a beautiful painting that sits in the Louvre worth hundreds of millions of dollars and to, to put a rocket into space that can land human beings on the moon and you can start to believe, you know what? The only problem we have is we just need more time to solve all these human problems. But if we're honest, if we're honest, if we're willing to pay attention to what's going on in the world as the default way we live, we will have to acknowledge there's something very deeply dark in the human heart. My goodness, just read the news for five minutes, two minutes, and tell me we don't have a sin problem in the world. Tell me we don't have a great darkness in the human heart. I don't need to list the things that have been in the news lately to convince you of that. And if you'll take an honest look into your own heart, you'll see a darkness there too. You'll see a rebellion. You'll see just what we've been talking about this week, just like I see in myself, this need to manage things for myself and instead of letting God manage things as the creator and the king of the universe. I have this instinct to think I know better. And it's insane. And it's rebellion against God. But of all the things Christians believe... I actually don't think there's anything easier to prove with evidence than that there's a terrible human sin problem in the world. But of all the things Christians believe, I don't think there's anything harder for us to accept. We don't like to hear that about ourselves. And so when it becomes an undeniable reality, we'll try to deny it. We will try to excuse our sin minimize our sin, blame our sin, rationalize our sin, spiritualize our sin, excuse it at every level, and it begins with a self-deception that leads to an other deception. And I must tell you, it goes on throughout your life. Now, I am happy to say, and I want to encourage you with the fact that I've been seeking to kill sin in my life a really long time, and do you know what? I've seen some sin put to death. There are things I used to be tempted to 
that I can't even believe I was tempted to now. Not only am I not tempted, it seems like it must have been a different person that would actually ever think that sin was possibly going to satisfy. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to talk about sin tonight. It's going to be hard, and I think it's going to take a miracle for every one of us to accept God's word tonight about the human condition. Because our own hearts like to deceive us about how fine we're doing. I heard a really influential, really popular, really cool, really trendy preacher be interviewed by Oprah not that long ago. And she asked him, if you could have one message to tell the whole world, what would you tell him? And do you know what he said? That we're all going to be just fine. And I thought of the prophet in the Old Testament rebuking the other leaders and prophets among God's people because they were saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Acting like we're all going to be just fine when God tells us that there's going to be hell to pay for human rebellion against the Creator. A highly unpopular doctrine, teaching of the church, even among churches who say they believe the Bible sometimes. And so we've got to be sobered by God's word tonight. It's going to take a miracle. It will, because the human heart will resist this at every turn. And it's a battle we have our whole lives. And I hope you're getting this week the importance of truth, the existence of truth, the accessibility of truth, and the life-giving, life-freeing result when you embrace truth and live it out. And at the same time, I hope you are seeing that lies will kill you. They'll destroy your life now, and they'll destroy your life for eternity if you don't turn from this sin we're talking about tonight to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. It couldn't be more serious. To, to love truth and hate sin, hate lies. And, and I... I have seen lies grow throughout my life, and I have constantly in my life needed to fight a lying heart myself. I remember years ago I was speaking at a conference in Cincinnati with a group, I don't know, maybe twice this size. And I finished my sermon with a story, a, a true story that actually happened to me. And at the end of the story, the end of my sermon... I lied. I made the story just a little bit better than it was. Just to make it a better story, you know, a little more effective. And as soon as I did it, I knew I had done it. And I felt a wave of conviction. But there, my sermon's over. And when I got back to my room, I knew that the next night when I was about to preach, I had to tell this group I was preaching to that week that I had lied to them the night before. And for 23 hours, I wrestled with this. And I came up with every excuse in the world. I said, well, everything else I said was true. Even the story was true, except the way I ended it just better than it actually was. 
And I said, if I confess this, maybe it'll discredit everything else I've said, which is true. And then I was thinking, and there's truth to this too, if I confess my sin to them, some of them will, will think, oh man, he's so real, he's so authentic. And it'll be some sort of weird way of, of connecting with people, you know? And maybe what would seem like a manipulative way. And I, I came up with all these reasons not to confess that sin of lying. Here I am, the guy preaching the truth of God, and I lie in one of my stories. But I got up, and I started off my sermon by saying, I, I need to make a confession. And I told him what had happened. Halfway through the confession, I saw a guy get up in the back and give me a look like he was disgusted, and he walked out. Another guy followed him, looking the same way. I got to preach a sermon. And some people were really bothered by this. You know, some, most people were, were super gracious about it. But, but I'm so glad I did that. It was hard. It was awkward. It, it was hard. Do you know, years later, it hasn't happened in a long time, but years later, I would see someone. I'd meet someone, and I'd say, hey, how you doing? And he'd say, where do I know you from? Oh, that's right. You spoke at the conference in Cincinnati. And the first thing they think of was, oh, you were the guy who told us you lied. And so, it, you know, you got to carry this around, and, and it becomes, and you think, man, I just want my relationships to be easy, but I must tell you, I look back on that, and I think, what if I had said no to the Spirit of God when he was convicting me of that sin? If I had said no and hadn't done anything to make that right before God and other people, and that's another angle I use. I said, you know what, Lord, I confess to you. Do I really need to confess this way too? I remember I lied one other time to somebody. It was my boss. I, was, I, was, I had two jobs, and I wasn't supposed to, and... She asked me where I was the night before, and I, I told a lie. I can't remember what I said, but, but uh, I was convicted again, and I talked to my friend Mark, who's he's actually coming up here Saturday with his 10 kids, and, um, and I, I said to him, he's a dear brother. He has a fear of the Lord, and I said, hey, Mark, uh, you know, I, I confessed lying to Dawn to God. Do you think I need to confess to her too? And he, he's in this recliner. He's laying there like this. And, he, and I asked him that question, and he goes. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I thought so. I knew I needed to. And so I did. I did. And, but I, I must tell you, as hard as it was to confess to God and to confess to people, there's a freedom that comes in confession that's awesome. And there's a bondage that comes in the refusal to repent that'll destroy your life because it sets a pattern, it sets a trajectory of your life. You know, a lie, you know, who's hurt by a preacher saying something untrue at the end of a story? You could argue till the cows come home of how irrelevant this sort of thing is, but deception in the human heart, lies in the human heart, mostly to impress people, establish myself in some way that I'm obviously feeling a lack in. And that's what I want you to realize, that sin is grounded in insecurity and arrogance all at the same time. 
It's either or. I think we as humans swing on this pendulum from gross insecurity to gross arrogance. Those two aren't mutually exclusive. I think they actually work together. And the more arrogant you are, the more insecure you are. I mean, if you're confident in who you are, you, you don't need to boast. You don't need to make a big deal of yourself. And so I, I want to exhort you, encourage you, plead with you to ask God right now to, to soften your heart, to make him aware of the sin in your life. Now, as I said before, I know you're all over the place in your understanding of God and yourself and your sin and where you are. So if you're someone who's never trusted Jesus in saving faith, I want you to know that a Christian who's been forgiven of her sin can completely relate to you because before she was forgiven of her sin, she was dead in her trespasses and sins in which she once walked. That's what the Bible says about everybody. So you're not alone in this condition. We all equally share it. That's why there's no place for self-righteousness or arrogance in the Christian life. Arrogant Christians should never go together. Confident, yes. Bold, yes. But boasting in Christ and what he's done that enables us to be used in powerful ways and be his children by his finished work. But we've got to be people who are willing to take a hard look at our sin. And if you are a Christian, I want all of us to understand the depth of our sin, because you know what happens when you understand the depth of your sin? You will start to understand the depth of God's grace like you never had before. The most godly people I know, you know, these old people been walking with Jesus their whole lives, they have a deep sense of their sin and a deep sense of the grace of God, and that's what I want us to understand better tonight. And so, we are a people who need to understand the grace of God at work in our lives. Do you know the word true or truth is used 25 times in the Gospel of John? Nine times in, in just John chapter 2. A total of 45 times in John's Gospel and his letters, the word true or truth is used. It's a powerfully important word. And tonight, we're going to look at some passages where Jesus unpacks truth. Because I want you to realize that what Alan Ross, this, this uh, preacher, this theologian says is this. A thorough knowledge of the word of God an unwavering trust in the goodness of God. See, those two have to go together. You don't just need to know God's true. You need to know he's good. These are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. I have so enjoyed and been blessed by worshiping with all of you and our worship team this week. It's a powerful thing, and what's evident to me is this is not only an exuberant, joyful expression of our enjoyment of God. Worship is warfare. We're engaging in warfare. Do you know how much Satan hates what we're doing right now and every time we gather like this, getting stronger in the strength that God provides by the Spirit? He hates it, and we're going to war. I don't think he wants to be anywhere near what's going on here. He runs from this sort of setting, and that's a good thing. And those who fear the Lord don't have to fear anything or anyone else. But please realize that there's a spiritual victory we need over the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that comes through this amazing combination of the knowledge of the Word of God and an unwavering trust that comes from it in who God is, His goodness, His truthfulness, so we know God is true and we know God is good. So open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 8. Jesus is taking off the gloves tonight as he is once again confronted 
and confronting the religious leaders, the people who are persecuting him, plotting his death, seeking to destroy him and stop his ministry. John chapter 8 is where I want to go, and I want to focus on a few key times Jesus himself talks about truth. Verse 24 of John 8. Here we go. Help us, Lord, please. Lord, please help us now to hear from your word and learn all you have for us. Amen. John 8, 24. Actually, let's start at 23. He said to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you hear Jesus? Do you hear the words of Jesus now? He's saying, look, you've got just this earthly message. I've got one that's coming from the creator. And the message is, if you don't believe I am who I say I am, you'll die in your sins. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says, if you have the son, you have life. If you don't have the son, you don't have life. I know life is complicated and complex and confusing, but in another way, it's really simple and really clear. And I would never want you to miss the clarity and the simplicity of the word of God. If you've trusted Jesus, if you take him at his word, if you believe he is the way, the truth, and the life, and you bank your life on him, then you'll have life. Count on it. And if you don't, you won't. Count on it. We need to take Jesus at his word. And then later on in this chapter, in verse 31, he says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word and you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, you might not realize that sin keeps you in bondage, but that's how the Bible talks about it that we are imprisoned by our sin. And what's amazing about it is sin promises to set you free. Sin promises and often feels like freedom because you're not answering anybody. You're not taking any direction from God. You're determining life your own way and according to your own will and this autonomy we talked about. And it feels like freedom for a while until we keep going. And, and I must tell you, listen to an old man, please. I've been sinning my whole life. I've been sinning for 58 years. Actually, there's never been anything I've done that didn't have some sin in it. That's the process of getting home. There will be a day when those who belong to Jesus will be set free once and for all. We've been set free foundationally and in a progressive way, but one day it'll all be gone. And I'll never hurt anybody again. And I'll never sin again, and that's going to be glorious. But along the way, we need to realize how deceptive sin is. The deceitfulness of sin is something so real and powerful that we need to acknowledge it for how powerful it really is. And I'm telling you, I've been sinning for 58 years, and I want you to hear me. Sin has never kept its promise to me once. Not once. 
Sin will promise freedom. Sin will promise, promise pleasure. Sin will promise security. Sin will promise identity and significance and popularity. And whatever it is you're longing for, it will promise that if you follow the way of sin, that you will find those things. It's never true. Sin is always grounded in a lie that we're being told from Satan, from the world, from our own hearts, but sin is always a liar. Sin will always stand up and mock you and make a fool of you for listening to it as if it's true. Don't be a fool. I've been a fool too many times in my life, and it's amazing to me how, how the deceitfulness of sin is becoming more and more evident to me. And it's losing its grip increasingly in my life. It doesn't mean there's not sin I battle on a daily basis. And I wake up ready to go to war with it. But Jesus tells us that sin is something that will, set, uh, that, that will imprison us and truth will set us free. Look, it goes on, 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. And, and that's a shorthand for, I know you're religious people. I know you get so much of your importance in your kingdom belonging from your identity as Jews, as children of Abraham, your religion, your, your religious pedigree, your background. And, and this applies to those of us who were raised in Christian families and went to church our whole lives. We can lean and depend on that instead of Jesus. He says, I know, I know you're children of Abraham. I know you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do not do what I have heard from my father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father, that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord. He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Oh my. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Can you imagine asking your enemies that? <laughs> they couldn't have any evidence. They didn't have any evidence of his sin. Which one of you convicts me, can convict me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. 
The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. Do you hear how black and white Jesus is? He is not equivocating. He is not ambiguous. He is not just trying to make them happy. He's telling them the truth. And it's not because he lacks love. It's because he's loving he tells them the truth. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Oh, my goodness. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out in the temple. I don't know if you realize what just happened. But what an incredible interaction between Jesus and these religious leaders. It's just incredible. What he just did was take the great I am title from Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is at the burning bush. And he says to God, when God tells him to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, he says, who am I? And he says, it's not about you, Moses. It's about who I am. And he says, well, who shall I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am sent me. I am that I am, and even make a name out of it for me called Yahweh. His presence, his power, his eternality, his self-existence, his self-sufficiency are all built into this name, I am. And it becomes the sacred name of God. And here Jesus, the humble carpenter from Nazareth, grabs that title and applies it to himself as the divine son of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. They didn't believe it. No wonder they picked up stones. That's the height of blasphemy to do that. If Jesus isn't God and he talks like that, he's nothing but a blasphemer who should be killed according to the old covenant laws. But he is God, and he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. Do you hear how bold he is and clear he is? And I don't know if you hear me read that or read that yourself, and Jesus sounds mean to you. Or Jesus sounds harsh to you. Or Jesus sounds condemning to you. But we have been trained by our culture to hear clear, strong, bold truth as mean, as harsh, as unkind, as unloving. And we've learned to hear the soft, persuasive, cool, hip word of lies as persuasive, 
and nice and kind. And before you know it, we start calling good evil and evil good. And we can't even tell the difference because we don't have a category for truth being told clearly and boldly and with conviction. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And he's not unloving in doing it. He would be unloving if he weren't talking to them this way. That's what we needed. And it's fascinating to watch people work with people. Uh, watch Jesus work with people. Jesus will go up to someone and everyone's expecting him to condemn a prostitute. And he loves her. And he says, she's putting you all the shame and understanding how much grace she has received. Everybody expected Jesus to reject, you know, the sinners, the lepers, the drunks. And he loved him and forgave him and told him to go sin no more. But then the people, they were expecting him to, to bow before and, and see himself as lower than like the religious leaders. He's calling them out. He goes after them more than anybody, the religious people. It's just astounding how Jesus confronts them with such boldness and strength because they don't understand who he is. And the bottom line question is who he is. One more passage from John. John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. <gasps> the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Are you noticing a pattern here? <laughs> Jesus isn't just a nice guy who's trying to make everybody happy and feel good about themselves. He's a man who is the truth, who's bringing the truth in a way that's very unsettling to people. So people are trying to kill him for what he is saying and who he's saying he is. Jesus is not holding back at all. And it's because he realizes that lies will kill you and truth will give you life. And he wants people to not believe lies and to believe truth. It really is that simple, especially when you understand that Jesus is the truth. Because truth is the bottom line. Look at 2 Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, the, the one who represents being opposed to God and his ways, is, uh, one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception, lies, for those who are perishing. Why do they perish? Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Not just know it, not just accept it, but love it. Embrace it, abide in it. That's what it takes. That's what it means to really understand these things. And I want you to realize, dear ones, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm a student of culture. It's, it's, I'm constantly exegeting culture. I can't, you know what culture is? It's the ways, the customs, the assumptions, the values, the, the vibe of a group, of a cat. I'm, I'm, all week I've been trying to figure out the culture of Hume this week here. 
talking to people and watching people and seeing what's going on because you can't be an effective truth teller if you don't know who you're speaking with, right? And, and so when we evaluate culture, I watch our culture and I watch it make it almost impossible to understand sin and take it seriously. What do I mean by that? Even this word sin I've been using. Outside the Bible, listen to me, listen. Outside the Bible, do you know where I bet you've seen the word sin used most? Outside the Bible? Do you know where I bet you've seen that word used most? Dessert menus. You know what I'm talking about? I have examples. I've been collecting them. I've got dozens of them. I'll just show you a few. You ready? Cookie dough conquest. Sinfully delicious. What? What? Sinfully delicious. This is a chef who makes things. Look at her. <laughs> right. Is that amazing? Look at, look at this. This is their ad campaign. Remember I told you marketers are the smartest people? Look, look at this. This is in San Francisco, the confectional. Confess your love for cheesecake. That says, forgive me, chocolate, for I have sinned. I've not yet had my daily confection. <laughs> this is Orange County Register. Guilty pleasures. He went around and tried pizzas. Even for a guy who's paid to indulge, these dishes are sinfully over the top. What? That's in the pharmacy right next to my house. I almost flipped that table right over when I walked in there. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Don't all shout it out at once. Raise your hand and I'm going to call on you because it's chaos when you shout stuff out. But let me ask you something. When you see sinful, sinful colored nail polish, and these, this is trying to get you to buy these things. What's going on in your head and in your heart regarding this thing we call sin when that happens? Tell me your name. Yeah. Dylan, what are you going to say? You'd buy, <laughs> you'd buy it just to get rid of it. All right, good. Dylan, bro, I love your, I, I love your heart, but I got news for you. They'll just get another one. It ain't going to stop. What does it do to your head and heart? Talk to me. Somebody raise your hand and, and give me some. What, tell me your name. Karen? Karen? Sharon? Sharon, what? Tell me. Yeah. So, so what this is saying is what you really want, what's really going to give you pleasure, whether it's in a dessert or nail polish, and I got dozens of these, I'm telling you. Sin is pleasurable. That's the constant message, right? So keep going. What does this do? Somebody, what, tell me your name. Emma, what does this do? Okay, yeah, there's a rebellious instinct they're tapping into right behind Emma. Bailey, right? Audrey, Audrey, yes. Um, Audrey, say that again. Yeah, I've, I've got to have that. Good. Good. What else does it do? Yeah. Say again. Say that so I can hear. I got old ears. It's good to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah, over here. So I can hear you real loud. 
Yeah, it, there's a temptation in this. Look, if you get enough of this, yeah. It normalizes it. Yeah. It's something to indulge in. Yeah. I'm sorry, please, loud. Yeah. That's right. It makes it more common. Okay, let's listen. Here's what goes on. When you see this all over the place, and usually it's the best thing on the dessert menu, right? Chocolate decadence. Hagendas had an ad campaign years ago. It was enjoy the guilt. Jaguar Automobiles had an ad campaign based around the seven deadly sins, saying you can satisfy all seven deadly sins if you have a Jaguar. It's just amazing how what they're saying to us is sin is what you want. So listen, what does that say about righteousness? Boring. Unappealing, unsatisfying, unpleasurable, righteousness, forget it. Sin, now that's what you want. That's what you're after. And it ends up trivializing sin and making it almost impossible to grieve over sin. To grieve my sin, to hate my sin. Sin put Jesus on a cross and we're using the word to describe nail polish. You see what's going on here? We're being lied to. There's something deceptive in all of this, but I want to make sure we leave here with a clear biblical definition of sin, not as what makes you want to buy nail polish, but how the Bi listen to how the Bible describes sin. Look at all these terms. Missing the mark, evil, disobedience, transgression, stepping over a line, iniquity, lawlessness, trespass, ignorance, godlessness, wickedness, unbelief, unrighteousness, unholiness. These are the words the Bible uses. Just, it's trying to come at it from all these different angles so we get it and we understand the depth of it. Because if you don't understand what sin is, you'll never understand why God hates it so much. And you'll never understand what in the world is going on on the cross. Because yes, it's God's love displayed in the cross, but it's also God's justice. It's also his wrath. It's also his judgment of sin. And so look at all these biblical words. For sin, and here's a great, really concise definition. Sin is anything in the creature which does not express or which is contrary to the holy character of the creator. So when I lie at a conference, it's so easy to say, you know what, practically speaking, nobody's going to be hurt by this. What difference does it make? But what's going on in the heart of Eric Tonis is something contrary to the heart of my creator, different than the character of my creator. So when I follow something that is a sin, lying, it's not just assessed based on the practical ramifications. It's based on the fact that I just let my heart go in a direction away from God and demonstrate a character opposite of God's. And so we've got to see the God-centeredness of sin and the deceitfulness of sin. Look how 2 Timothy talks about our situation, and he said this is going to increase in the end times. People will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. You could summarize sin really well that way. And there are three things I want you to know. Sin is a heart problem. Sin is a worship problem. Sin is a relationship problem. One, sin is a heart problem. It's universal. Everybody's in the same boat when we start off as humans. Out of the heart evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. This is a heart issue. It's not just what I do externally. All that I do starts out in my heart. 
And we're all in this together. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in this together. There's something comforting in that. And the Bible says things like, no temptation has seized you. It isn't common to man. I know you may feel the weight of your sin, but don't think you're different than any other human who has to deal with a sin problem too. We're all in this together, and the heart is the origin of our sin. Listen to Alan Ross, great quote again. The fall of the human race starts not with an action, but with an attitude of the heart. Not with an act, but with a sneer. The serpent is denying what God said. He's mocking what God said. It's a heart issue. Sin is a problem of the heart. And sin is a worship problem. Sin is always and ultimately related to God. Sin is personal. And sin is relational. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1. This is as good a definition of sin as you're ever going to hear right here in Romans 1. As Paul is trying to help the Romans understand what sin is. Listen to Romans 1, starting at verse 18. Oh, I love to hear the swishing of Bible pages. I love it. It's one of the best sounds in the world. It's better than Bach. And Bach is pretty good. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, there it is, look, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, here it is, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what does that result in? And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Sin is a worship problem, and everybody worships. Everybody gives themselves to something. It's not just religious people that worship. Everybody's devoted to something, even if it's just themselves or their bellies or their bank accounts. We're always giving ourselves to something as what we adore and what we live for. And the question is not, will you worship, but is what you're worshiping worth your worship? And will it lead you to life and joy and satisfaction and freedom? in what God created you for in the first place. So sin is a heart problem. Sin is a worship problem. And sin is a relationship problem. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, Isaiah says. And the wages of sin is death. Sin disintegrates relationships between us and our creator and between us and others and between us and the creation itself and between us and ourselves. There's a war even raging within ourselves in our sinfulness. And I want you to watch the biblical language and try to use biblical language as much as you can. Here's what I've been watching happen. As I've, as I've been studying the culture and church culture, you know what I hear a ton of when we're talking about sin? Words that the Bible doesn't use primarily to define sin. 
I hear all the time in, in songs and in, in preaching words like, not disobedience, transgression, iniquity, disobedience, rebellion, uh, hatred for God, these things. You know what I hear? Sin is being wounded. Sin is um, being lonely. Sin is being sad. Sin is being weak. Sin is being broken. We'll talk about our brokenness. We'll talk about our woundedness. We'll talk about the effects of sin on us, which we need to recognize and care about. But see, if we start making the symptoms of sin, the definition of sin, the solution to sin won't be forgiveness and righteousness from Christ. It'll be therapy. It'll be um, yoga. It'll be recreation. It'll be positive self-esteem lessons. It'll be things to make ourselves feel better because we're helpless victims in a sinful world. And we are, but we're also victimizers. We believe lies and we tell lies. We're, we're uh, victims of the problem and we're perpetuators of the problem. We keep it going. And that has to stop with something called repentance. Repentance. Because the wages of sin is death. The Bible couldn't be any more clear. And we're separated from God because of this. And I don't want to make it overly complicated because it's relational. It is relational. It is spiritual. It is something that comes from the heart. But you know what it boils down to? Disobeying God's word. Breaking his laws. Not doing what he says or doing what he says not to do. That's why it is relational, and it's a heart issue, and it's spiritual. But at the end of the day, it's knowing God's word, and it's obeying God's word that leads to righteousness in life. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. In the great commission that we're all about here, preaching the gospel to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the authority Jesus gives also includes, anybody know the second half of the great commission? You, you make disciples, you baptize them, and then what do you do? You make more disciples. What's the rest of that, that commission Jesus gives his disciples? Where are you? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Who said that? Who was that? Grace. That's you, Grace. That's you, Grace. Yeah. Right. Hi, Grace. Thank you. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Be being a disciple isn't something that happens... In, in a night at camp, and then stops. That's the beginning of the journey of obeying Jesus, and you can't obey Jesus unless you know what he commanded, the word of God. And so disobeying the truth of God's word is what sin is, not doing what he says to do and doing what he says not to do. It, it gets down to a really simple way of living. You know, my wife will often have a young lady come to her and say, Donna, I think I met the man of my dreams. I think I've met the man I'm going to marry. And do you know what Donna's first question will often be? Is he obedient to Jesus? You know, she doesn't say, does he love Jesus? Because she might say, oh, yeah, he plays a guitar and sings worship songs with his eyes closed. He loves Jesus. But Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And anybody remember uh, Smokey the Bear? That's my daughter when she was little, my daughter Paigey. You remember Smokey the Bear? Remember what his slogan was? What was it? Only you can prevent forest fires. And that's what he looked like. See, he's pointing at you. Tell me your name. 
Will. He's pointing at you, Will, saying, do you know who starts forest fires? 15 to 24-year-olds. You guys, right? And so, so he's saying, you, Will, only you can prevent forest fires. Take responsibility, Will. Right? That's what he's saying. Don't break the rules that we put out there so we don't start forest fires. Do you know they completely changed the whole marketing approach with, with Smokey the Bear? Do you know that? It's gone through a complete makeover, very intentionally. This is what he looks like now. You love him, don't you? That's what he looks like. Now listen, listen. He doesn't point at you anymore and tell you what to do. He hugs you when you do something right. And I'm all for positive affirmation. But listen to the marketing genius who changed the marketing campaign. The hugs are part of a decision to turn Smokey into a character who is depicted as rewarding people rather than treating them or admonishing them to take personal responsibility. It's moving the tone away from somber, which doesn't resonate with young people while maintaining the seriousness of the issue. Smokey is changing from a teacher or authority figure into a model of positive reinforcement. Now, I am all for positive reinforcement. I'm all for hugs. I'm all for cheering people on and being a huge champion of people and saying, I'm for you. But do you have a place in your life for authority telling you what to do, especially when that authority is God? It's amazing. Do you only have a category for hugs and being told you're just fine? that we're all going to be okay when the Bible says we're not unless we turn from our sin and trust Jesus? Jesus is the solution. Right in Genesis 3 that Sarah talked about on Sunday night, God already has the plan in place when Adam and Eve rebel in their sin to solve the problem, and it comes through the seed of the woman. He will crush the head of the serpent, the great liar, and the father of lies is going down one day, and Jesus has already delivered a decisive blow in that battle when he died on a cross and rose from the dead, and Jesus will be, have his heels stricken on that cross, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent and set us free. That's what he does because that's who he is, and he's done it on the cross, and he's going to do it once and for all one day. We've got to take our sin seriously. We've got to see it for what it is. We've got to grieve over it. We've got to hate it. We've got to go to war against it. And that starts with believing truth from God and rejecting lies from the pit of hell. Yes, that'll kill you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you that because Jesus is who he said he is and did what he came to do, we've been set free from sin and death and hell and the judgment we deserve if it weren't for Jesus. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that when we come to you with nothing but sin, you make us holy and righteous and forgiven and adopted because of Jesus in our faith in him. Lord, we thank you that we come to you with filthy hands and you give us clean hands. We thank you that we can celebrate that and worship to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.